So maybe I'll start out with just talking a little bit about. I, I decided recently, very, uh, very, in a very reluctantly, to actually call this the last uh, last session, um, and not to do it again until start it up again in for the next in the next academic year in September. September, and the email I sent out, I said I'm going to be. I'm thinking the ideas I have would be to just continue doing what we're doing right now, and that would mean that we would do. So we're done with the, with the profits tonight. And so then starting in September, we'd get into what the New Testament t teaches about eschatology and the second coming of Christ and the end of the world. And uh, so I think that would be an interesting thing to do. And uh, it's very popular amongst uh, different Protestant groups to, to talk about this kind of stuff. And we, you know, we have our own eschatological tradition as Catholics. It's massive. Uh, I mean, it's very, very rich, and it's, it's just very uh, monolithic even. And so why don't we learn a little bit about that? So that would be something to do, and then we could go on to some of the uh, the apologetic questions of, you know, how do we deal with the, all this violence in the Old Testament? Uh, does that disqualify the the sanctity of the Bible because it's so violent? The Old Testament is very violent, or does it does the early accounts of cre the creation story in the beginning of the Bible does that contradict science? Is there some way to reconcile that? Does that does that challenge the truth of the Bible? These sorts of questions that people commonly have, I think we could then address those. Um, so that might be one possible sort of class to do. The other thing to do would be, I really want to do this actually with probably the Tyburn kids. And I got to talk with, um, you know, don't let this out here. I probably shouldn't even say it. Don't let this out because it's really just an idea in my mind right now. And I don't know if it's like legally feasible, if it's all this kind of stuff, if it's feasible with my boss, Father Leoy, and everything else that I got to do with my, with my schedule. But I'd like to do a class that's basically what I would call vocations and states of life. And it's the most nitty-gritty class about just living the Catholic life that you could possibly, you know, think of. And it, talk, it talks about, you know, the different states of life, how you would discern what God is, what, how God is calling you to these different states of life. And then with real practical things like marriage, uh, child-rearing, sexual morality, and it would be very adult content, but I would want to actually teach it to like 12th graders, okay, because it would be an important time of their life where they would have to be kind of thinking about this sort of stuff, you know, getting themselves on the right track for the rest of their life. And then I would repeat it for adults in the evening. That's an idea. Okay, so that's the second idea that I have. Then the third idea that I have is doing kind of like, a, you know, um, doing maybe like two- and three-week sessions and their self-contained things on a given topic and then stop it and then deliberately advertise for a new topic with specific dates. And then and I would advertise it like in the bulletin, over the pulpit, at the, you know, in any way that I could. And it would just be a different topic. So it would be a topical thing, and I would probably pick hot-button topics, you know, that would catch people and anger people and want to get them to argue with me and come and hear me, actually. So that, that might be another, another thing I was thinking of doing. So I don't know. What do you guys think, just speaking about those ideas? What do you think about one, two, or three? I think it's great. Well, I can't do all the above. I mean, unfortunately, I would like to do all the above. But, uh, Barb? Father, I think that idea about the vocations is really good because yeah. a lot of the kids, once they receive confirmation, yeah. there's nothing for them. You know, my daughter Sarah, you know, she's... Yeah. There's nothing there for the, those kids at age. And a little bit, the, I got a couple yeah. of... Yeah, and it would be very, very... 
it would be very adult, but I would, you know, I, I think a 17 and 18-year-old, are they're pretty much ready to hear what an adult is going to hear, you know. But it would be very adult content, and I want to be. You, I don't know they had, a Catholic. 17, 18. They had, uh, they had one in the bulletin. It's in this week's bulletin. This long, I thought it was pretty interesting. I heard a vocation with that. I'm thinking, what is that? Every time I start reading Oh, okay, a little prayers. little explanation yeah, on what little, vocation, yeah. Yeah. I'm going for two. That's my vote. Which one? The the vocations and states of life? Yeah. yeah. It, it, uh, I think that it's important because obviously the kids is true. Yeah. Because you're saying later for the adults. You know, well, because we influence kids. Right. It influences know? kids, but I think all I, of us are in our state of life, whether think, we like it or not. You know what I mean? Right, We're settled I, down, but. But we, we need to we be get influenced lost, or we, that's true or too. We, we sure. Wanna, or, or big events happen in our lives, mm. loss of parent, yeah. or, or whatever. And I would be addressing all that stuff, death, how to deal with death, and, and all the kind well, of stuff. Well, your life yeah. changes, and now where are you going, and what are you going to do? Yep. Not losing your way. Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't know. I really think that's important. I just find people are very, very, uh, we need guidance in that area, and uh, so... Uh, and I, the other reason, I thought there was a natural time to stop because we're pretty much, we've done like, we're, this will be the third session of the prophets. And, we, you know, we've pretty much covered the Old Testament in, in its big areas. Uh, I thought it was a natural time to stop. Right now, I've been convicted recently that I really need to spend a lot of time. There's kind of like essential things in terms of sacraments and liturgy that I'm not devoting myself to. And as a priest, it doesn't do you any good to be kind of pie-in-the-sky things, you know, like, I enjoy doing this. That's why I do it. But I'm sacrificing things that in a certain way are more fundamental to who I am as a priest. I need to focus on certain things. Uh, and so that was something I've been convicted on recently. I need to kind of get my act together and minister in other areas, a little more in a little more fundamental areas. <clears throat> so that's why I... Because this takes up... You know, I plan a lot. I take a lot of time planning, and I love doing it. But it does take a bit of time to... to do this and always on the hot button topics people you off the top of your head well like gay marriage you know same sex marriage I would get into probably issues of like divorce and annulments uh, stuff which does not the whole Catholic teaching on this does not make a lot of people happy I mean get into drugs possibly yeah although you know what's funny I have not found a huge tradition in our moral tradition on the morality of of narcotics when you study the Catholic moral tradition it's like there's writings on any topic under the sky, but on not hardcore narcotics, I don't. I haven't found a lot of writing on that, believe it or not. It's amazing. It's actually a remarkable thing. So I don't have a lot of guidance on that. Like, is it a mortal sin to smoke marijuana? No. Well, it depends. It depends on what the purpose is for. Yeah, what I'm saying is, we can have our own opinions on that and argue one way or the other. You know, which is legit, which is fine. We could do that, but there's no real. I don't. That's not how I operate. I go by what the tradition is, and there isn't real guidance on that. Really? Where, where, where's that? Where do you in find the catechism. that? Oh, in the catechism, yeah. But I, when I, I'm talking about extensive stuff, like we're talking, you open up, you have like libraries full of books on just war theory. Oh. No joke. And there's nothing like that for recreational drug use. Although, yeah, right, obviously the catechism is a good place to start. But well, none of this has been around that long. Uh, that's probably a lot of it, yeah. I mean, you know, marijuana in particular. Mar- it's mar- new to the West. Right. Yeah. And opiates never left. So I don't know, actually, Sue, if I really actually would get into that, because I'd want to speak with a with a kind of a, a certainty about whatever topic it was that I was talking about. Um, 
And uh, and I probably would get into just war theory, so we would get into but politics. What about uh, cohabitation without all that stuff? Sexual. I would get into all that. Yeah, exactly. I'd get. I'd address all the morality of all these different things that are common. You know. So that would be. That's an idea. That's the hot button topic stuff. You know. I. How to fill the room? How to make a lot of enemies and friends at the same time? You know. It's good. I like it. So uh, tonight, because like what I'm doing right now is like not very controversial, you know, all the biblical stuff, you know, unless it was, you know, amongst biblical scholars themselves, biblical scholar geeks, you know, they would probably think some of the things I'm doing would be controversial, but for the most part, there's nothing controversial today uh, about the biblical stuff here. Okay, so I thought we'd look at Isaiah 53, which is the big famous uh, prophecy about that features this figure of the suffering servant. So I, I handed out actually the text itself, so we don't have to turn there in our Bibles. I've got the, the text itself. And it's a specific translation. Um, I probably could have done a more, uh, a more specific translation than this, but this is a little bit deliberate here. So... Um, the clause, this section actually starts in Isaiah 52:13, and then goes into chapter 53 and, all, and includes all of chapter 53. So how about, um, who wants to, maybe we can have someone read the whole thing straight through. Anybody want to, Jack, you want to read this, the whole thing straight through? Behold, my servant shall prosper. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exceeding high. And many have been astonished at thee, so marred was his visage above that of man, and his form more than the sons of men. So shall he sprinkle many nations. The kings shall shut their mouth at him, for they to whom it was not told of him have seen, and they that had not heard have beheld. Who hath believed our report, and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? And he shall grow up as a tender plant before him, and as a root out of a thirsty ground. There is no beauty in him, nor comeliness. And we have seen him, and there is no sightliness, that we should not be desirous of him. That we should be desirous. Should be desirous of him. I'm sorry. That's all right. Despised in the most abject of men, a man of sorrows, and acquainted with infirmity. And his look was as it were hidden and despised, whereupon we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our infirmities and carried our sorrows, and we have thought of him as it were a leper, and as one struck by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our iniquities, he was bruised for our sins. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his bruises we are healed. All we, all we like sheep have gone astray, Every one hath turned aside into his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was offered because it was his own will, and he opened not his mouth. He shall be led as a sheep to the slaughter, and shall be dumb as a lamb before his shearer, and he shall not open his mouth. He was taken away from distress and from judgment. Who shall declare his generation? Because he is cut off out of the land of the living. For the wickedness of my people have I struck him. And he shall give the ungodly for his burial and the rich for his death. 
because he hath done no iniquity, neither was there deceit in his mouth. And the Lord was pleased to bruise him in infirmity. If he shall lay down his life for sin, he shall see a long-lived seed, and the will of the Lord shall be prosperous in his hand. Because his soul hath labored, he shall see and be filled. But his knowledge shall this shall this my just servant justify many, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore will I distribute to him very many, and he shall divide the spoils of the strong, because he has de- delivered his soul unto death, and was reputed without the wicked with the wicked, and he hath borne the sins of many, and hath prayed for the transgressor. Now, I think probably the first time I read this straight through as maybe an 18 or 19-year-old, you know, like sent goosebumps up my arms. I was like, wow, this is really, seems like it's, really seems like it's talking about Jesus Christ, but it's written hundreds of years before him. And, uh, but you know, it's just, it's just fuzzy enough around the edges that people can have other interpretations of it, and so and so it has been. Um, and so there have been, I should say. So if we go to the other sheets, we've got, I lay out five theories, five general theories as to who the suffering servant here is. All right, Sue, did you get the sheet? We can help you out there. There we go. So uh, you, got, you got basically five theories and you might be able to divide these up a little bit differently, but um, but these are the this is the gist of the, of what of how it's been interpreted and really how it could be interpreted. So uh, the first theory is that the servant figure that's going through the suffering and that's dying for people's sins is the Israelite nation. It's the nation of Israel in a collective sense, and so you have this figure who appears as an individual, but he really stands for, he's a metaphor for a nation. Um, so all of these theories are not, none of these theories are crazy, that's for sure. But I do think that the Christian, the traditional Christian interpretation is the best out of them all. But none of them are stupid or obviously false, I think. So uh, I think the strongest evidence for the truth of the first theory is that the suffering servant, or I'm sorry, not the suffering servant, but the servant figure in Isaiah shows up multiple times between uh, chapter 40 and chapter 66 in Isaiah. It shows up maybe, I don't know, eight times or something, maybe more. And uh, sometimes it's very clear that that servant is the nation of Israel. There's no doubt about it. It's a metaphor that God is referring to the nation as a whole as my servant in some of those passages. The question is, is that what it means here in this specific passage in Isaiah 53, and uh, and I would say no, but I, but the point is, if you wanted to put the argument, and say, look, it, the servant is is clearly referring to Israel in these passages, and so therefore also in this one, it would be referring to Israel as a nation. So I think that's probably the strongest kind of evidence that they have to support the first theory. Okay, now I put the counterpoints below this one, so. Uh, granting that the servant of the Lord applies to the whole people in other passages of Isaiah, such as in Isaiah 42.19. So if you go to 42.19, it's really clear that the servant is referring to the nation of Israel. 
But it also applies, this is the term servant, also applies to the prophets as a group in Isaiah 44:26. Okay, so the point is, uh, it's clear that the servant does not always refer to the same subject. All right, so sometimes the servant figure is designating prophets, sometimes it's designating the nation of Israel as a whole, and so just therefore, it doesn't necessarily always denote the nation as a whole. We've got to look at the specific context to see what it might mean. Uh, so we must determine from context in what sense the term must be understood in each particular case. So that would be my main sort of answer to the person who's saying, you know, well, look at these other passages, and the servant here in these other passages denotes the nation, therefore in 53 it denotes nation. Okay, second point against the theory one is that the servant is innocent while the Israelite people uh, are always spoken of as suffering for their own sins. Okay, so all throughout Isaiah, the nation is suffering and being punished, but it's a punishment for their sins. And again, you just have the, you got to look at the different passages that are cited to see whether that's true or not. I think it is true. Uh, especially in Daniel, the passage in Daniel 9.16, Daniel is praying and he's, he's interceding on behalf of the nation of Israel and he's saying, we're in exile right now, O Lord, because we were so sinful and we did all these things and we never listened to your prophets who told us to do what was right and we ignored them. And so now please forgive us our sins, so forth and so on. Here's another very good point, I think, very strong point, is that the servant suffers willingly while the Jews suffered against their will. And what I mean by they suffered against their will is in the exile. So when uh, Judah, the southern kingdom, uh, was basically punished by God by, through the Babylonians, the Babylonians then took them away into exile, they did that against their will. There was nothing... They weren't like voluntarily trying to expiate their sins or whatever. It was completely contrary to their will. Whereas the suffering servant in Isaiah 53 seems to be really doing this as an act of, he's doing it voluntarily. And it's not a punishment. It's a punishment for someone. There's, someone else's punishment is being laid on him. But he's innocent. Um, and then in Isaiah 53, 8 and 9, the prophet distinguishes the servant from the people. So, so the servant can't be the people of Israel because, let's read that text, in fact. So if you go to 53.8, it says, He was taken away from distress and from judgment. Who shall declare his generation? Because he is cut off out of the land of the living. For the wickedness of my people have I struck him. So there's a, for the wickedness of my people, the people of Israel, I would take it. Okay, have I, I think it's God speaking, have I struck him, the servant? Okay. So there's a difference here between the servant and the people, so it seems to me the servant is not the people of Israel in Isaiah 53. Um, and then also I think a good point is to look in verse uh, 52.14, right, the second verse we got listed says, uh, as many as been astonished at, at you or at the, so marred was his visage above that of men and his form more than the sons of men, so shall he startle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouth at him. For they to whom it was not told of him shall, uh, for they to whom it was not told of him have seen, and they that had not heard have beheld. And so you get this thing of, uh, you know, the way that it's being depicted is the servant is being kind of beat up, but at the same time he kind of has this sort of final vindication, and the nations are really uh, surprised about that, and. Again, it just doesn't really fit with the nation of Israel. I, I really can't 
sort of see. I mean, maybe someone can argue that after the Israelites came out of exile and they came back to the Holy Lands, that was surprising to the nations or something like that. You know, maybe, but it, it, it does seem to be hard to fit into the life of the nation of Israel as a whole. Um, and then what did I say here? Also, this is kind of a little bit of a minor point, but it's very interesting. Is um, what did the Jew? How does the Jewish tradition interpret Isaiah 53? You know, you might want to ask. So we know that Christians have always traditionally uh, read it as pertaining to Jesus of Nazareth, uh, and, uh, and therefore to an individual Messiah. So do, have the Jewish people read Isaiah 53 as pertaining to an individual Messiah? And the answer you get on that is it's very interesting. It's nuanced because there's a plurality within Judaism. And you have from very early on, as early as the third century, uh, Origen, who was an ancient Catholic theologian, who was arguing with Jewish scholars on this passage. And they were arguing that it has to do with the nation of Israel as a whole. And not because it was a very strong proof text that the Christians were using to try to basically persuade Jews that Jesus is the Messiah. They would say, look, it's in your own Bible here. This pertains to Jesus of Nazareth. He's, he's suffering. And look, it, you know, it's fulfilled in him. And they would say, well, no, no, that doesn't have to do with the Messiah. That has to do with the nation of Israel. So that is a Jewish response. But there is also, and many, many scholars have shown this very thoroughly and clearly, there is also another interpretive tradition within Judaism that does read Isaiah 53 as having to do with the Messiah. So even amongst the Jews themselves, when, they're not, when they were not sort of fighting Christians, there were Jewish thinkers who did interpret this as the Messiah. Now, albeit a minor, like that's a minor tradition, it's not the majority tradition, but it is there. So that's also interesting and maybe some evidence that it is an individual Messiah figure, not the nation. Especially when you see that if Jewish people are interpreting it as a nation and they're, and they're doing it in the context of, of polemics against Christians that might see that, okay, they've... They're, they're trying to win the fight. You know, they're trying to win the argument, so therefore their desire to win the argument is having them... It's influencing how they're interpreting the text. Um, <clears throat> so I don't know. I think probably the strongest argument of all of that is the fact is in Isaiah 53, 8 and 9, it looks like the prophet is distinguishing the servant from his people. And then I would also say the fact that the servant is totally innocent and he's suffering willingly and... He's suffering for someone else, for my people. Okay, so it doesn't seem like it's the nation of Israel. It really does seem like it's an individual who's suffering for the people. Okay, so that's one theory, all right? Now, I'm sure if there was someone who was here to promote theory one, he'd probably be able to do a better job of defending it and explaining it better than I, I did, you know, because I'm biased. I, I favor the Christian interpretation. Uh, theory two is that the servant equals some sort of a godly portion subsection within the Israelite nation. Okay, uh, and that's probably a stronger. You can make a better argument on that one, all right? Because what's the advantages of that second theory? Can anybody think? How is theory two better than theory one? Like, how could you argue? How does it avoid some of the weaknesses of theory one? You know, if it was a subsection of godly people, what do you theory think? One Tony? is the generality, and, and well, generalities are never correct. All Italians. Yeah. Okay. Now, what it, you remember, I said that like the strongest. <clears throat> I thought one of the strongest points was that the suffering si servant is totally innocent and righteous, and he's, you know, 
Right. And so if you have, but Israel is not, though, as a whole. They're sinful, and that's precisely why God is punishing them and bringing them into exile. But what if it was a godly subsection of Israel? Then that avoids that. You see, so, they, so the godly subsection of Israel would be innocent. You know, and maybe they're suffering because they're going into exile along with the, with the guilty. And see, they're kind of bearing the sins of the, of the sinners who they're identifying with and going into exile with. So, you know, it's a stronger interpretation. I think theory two is a stronger interpretation than one. Um, but here are some weaknesses with theory two. <clears throat> no collection of godly men was as such reputed with the wicked, cut off out of the land of the living, nor did they see long-lived seed. Now, I know Joseph Blankensop, who is a very big scholar for Isaiah, and he argues that he argues theory two, and it's kind of like uh, almost the way that he argues it is show, sort of shows you the weakness of it is because he has to posit a group of righteous Israelites who we don't really even have any evidence of, and he then he posits on the basis of this text that there was a group of like righteous you know almost like a religious order within Israel. And they went into exile and they bore the sins of the broader group because they went into exile with the broader group. And in exile, in Babylon, uh, they, this was written. And then they had, they had like a, a group of disciples that would continue on the lineage. And so that he does see his offspring. But it, see, you have to posit a hypothetical entity that we don't have any knowledge of, knowledge of from any other source. You know? Whereas you have someone, an actual figure who we know about, this guy Jesus of Nazareth, we know a lot about him. And he seems to fit the bill, so that it's a stronger it's a stronger fit, you know. But it's not, you know, thirty two is not stupid. But I just think it's not as strong as the traditional Christian interpretation. Uh, here's another point against thirty two. Much of the prophecy more easily applies to an individual. In verse three, the servant is the most abject of men, a man of sorrows. In verse ten and eleven, there is question of the servant's soul. In verse nine, we read of his burial. Um, in 42.19, the servant refers to a collective, but there the servant of is spoken in a more diffuse and general manner, while in Isaiah 53, there are too many specific things said about the servant for the servant to be understood as a metaphor. It does seem like it's talking about an individual. You know? So like if you go to the passages where the servant is being spoken about as a collective, it will say things like, my servant is blind, my servant is, uh, you know, will, will bring forth righteousness to the nations and certain things, but it's a little bit more general, whereas this one gets really, it's almost like a biography. It really reads like a biography. You know, he, he was cut off. He, he grew up. This is where he was born. You know, he grew up this way. He was not recognized with people. When he was punished, other people thought that he was punished because of his own sins, when really that wasn't the case. Then he was buried with the rich and the wicked, and he was account. It seems too, like, biographical to be a metaphor, but you know, someone might say, well, it's a really, it's using this concrete, really, really concrete individual as a metaphor. I don't know. But I mean, I don't think it's as strong. I think it's still got some weaknesses there to theory two. Okay, then you've got theory three is that the servant is basically the prophets in general, just like Old Testament prophets, the prophetic vocation or the prophetic order, the, the group of all those who were called to be a prophet in the Old Testament. Um, and so you've got certain things to, uh, uh, to, to in its favor, in the favor of th theory three. You've got the fact that prophets 
in the Old Testament have suffered much from their fellow citizens, especially Jeremiah. You go to Jeremiah, and Jeremiah was really... Jeremiah, in fact, we think as Christians, we traditionally refer to him as almost a type of Christ because he was so persecuted uh, and, and picked on, and he was thrown into a pit. And a lot of things in Jeremiah's life are similar to Christ's life. And so you might say, well, Isaiah 53 uh, is describing someone like Jeremiah or prophets in general because um, prophets were picked on... Uh, <clears throat> occasionally they pray for their persecutors, just like the suffering servant seems to intercede and pray on behalf of those who are um, killing him. Anyways, these two points, though, do not prove that therefore their sufferings were vicarious in nature and that they all agreed with the particulars of the prophet's description. The prophet's sufferings seem very different from those of the servant. So the analogy, the prophet suffered like the suffering servant does in many ways, but in other ways they don't, specifically and especially that the sufferings of the prophets are not understood to be uh, expiatory for the people. And, uh, you know, this is vicarious suffering. They're suffering, you know, they're, they're taking the punishment that should go on the people. Someone might want to interpret the prophets as suffering in that manner, but the biblical texts themselves, when you go to them, it's not what they're teaching if you read Jeremiah. Jeremiah is not teaching us that Jeremiah suffered in a vicarious manner on behalf of other people who, to whom should have gone the punishment, but he took it on, in their behalf. It's not what Jeremiah is teaching, right? But we've got this guy, Jesus of Nazareth, who explicitly taught that. I mean, he really did say, I'm going to be suffering for the redemption of others, and the words of institution of the Eucharist are specifically re re referencing, you know, when he says... Um, uh, it will be poured out for, for, for you and for many, the blood of the, of, the, of the Eucharist, blood of the chalice is a reference to Isaiah 53. And so and if you read Jesus' words in the Gospels, you see he's, he's kind of taking his marching orders from Isaiah 53. And he's saying that the Son of Man is going to suffer and redeem others. And, uh, and his blood, I'm going to shed the blood for you and for the remission of sin. So it's vicarious. So you've got this guy who's actually claiming that he fulfills this prophecy and his sufferings are, are vicarious and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, it fits better with him than it does with Jeremiah, for example. Although, again, theory three is not terrible, it's not dumb, but uh, it, I think the Christian interpretation is better. Okay, uh, theory four is um, that the servant equals an, a specific Old Testament prophet, not just the prophets in general, Old Testament prophets in general, but a specific Old Testament prophet. That's even harder to argue, you know, because um, they just there isn't one individual prophet in the Old Testament that really fits this description of the suffering servant. Various details of the prophet's description do not fit the person suggested, such as Moses, Hezekiah, David, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Josiah. The servant must be born in a lowly condition. He must be condemned unjustly to death. That's the other thing, to death, right? Moses was not condemned unjustly to death. Hezekiah, I mean, I don't think so. David, no. Jeremiah, no. Isaiah, Josiah, no. It really, you know, being condemned to death, unjustly to death. I think it's clear suffering servant is being condemned to death. Um, he's cut off. Whenever that term is used in the Old Testament, he's cut off from the land of the living. It means he's dead. He got killed. So, well, the two of the fifth best weren't alive. 
the two that fit that. John the Baptist and yeah. Jesus. Yeah, yeah, right. They fit the best, but they weren't. But they weren't alive. They but weren't alive, so it's not them. Well, I mean, supposing supposing it's a prophecy, though, that would be what I'm well, saying. Well, that that would be what I would agree to. Yeah. You know, so the other reason why you wouldn't, so you bring up another topic, it's a philosophical topic. The other reason why you wouldn't think that this has to do with Jesus is because you just don't believe in prophecy. <laughs> you just don't, you know, you just deny the fact that it's possible for someone to foresee a man who lives 700 years after. So, I mean, if you take that approach, then yeah, okay, so it can't be, it can't be Jesus. But that's a, that would be, you know, you'd have to argue that prophecy is possible, and that the, the Bible is prophetic. And hi, girls. You, if you're, you're more than welcome to come up and get these sheets up here. Okay. Tony will help you. Tony's been helping everybody. So, uh, so then let's go to theory five. All right. So theory five is the is a traditional Christian theory that it's a Messiah figure that's being prophesied about, and then specifically it's Jesus. And then I've got all these texts from the New Testament to show you that Isaiah fifty three is really important. It shows up. You know, it's actually rarely quoted in the New Testament, but you can see that it, it's, all, it's language, it's alluded to in the New Testament all the time, all the time, everywhere, and in Jesus' specific his life. In fact, what was it? Someone was arguing, I, saw, I read a scholar once who made a good argument. Oh, yeah. You know, we understand Christ, in the Christian tradition, we understand Christ to be our high priest, and... Um, you can argue that uh, the very easily you can argue that the suffering servant figure of Isaiah 53 is a priest figure, specifically from verse 15. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Now, sometimes you guys might have a translation that says, "So shall he startle many nations." But the how they how some why some translations say "startle" is kind of a long story. The short and skinny of it is that the more obvious translation, it, by far, is "sprinkle." And that the word sprinkle, if you look on my footnote here on footnote number one, sprinkle refers to the legal purification from uncleanness, as may be seen in Leviticus, Numbers, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, so forth and so on. And all those texts have to do with priests sprinkling blood or water on people and cleansing them of sin, cleansing them from their sin. So this figure, and I, the suffering servant is a priestly figure, very strong priest overtones. He shall sprinkle many nations. Um, and uh, so Jesus sort of speaking about himself in terms of a high priest, priestly figure, he's getting it from Isaiah 53 because he's not claiming to be a priest like a Levitical priest or he's not going to be a Kohanim as they call it in the, the Hebrew. He's not from the lineage of Aaron. Jesus is from the tribe of Judah. So, but he's but he's speaking about himself as a high priest. How so? Well, because his his warrant is Isaiah fifty three. He's speaking about himself as if he's the fulfillment of Isaiah fifty three, and Isaiah fifty three figures forth someone who seems very priestly in their in what they're doing. Um, one little interesting consideration is that there are ancient streams of Jewish tradition that read Isaiah fifty three as pertaining to an individual Messiah figure. Well, first, let's say, what are some of the weaknesses? Because I said the weaknesses of all the other theories. What are some of the weaknesses of Theory 5? I think, uh, you know, if you didn't believe in prophecy, that would be a weakness, right? It can't be a future figure. And I think that is actually kind of the deciding factor for many biblical scholars. They just, they just block it out of their minds that it can't pertain to Jesus of Nazareth because, well, how can, 
someone who's writing hundreds and hundreds of years before the birth of this guy know about him, and so it can't be about him. And so then they come up with kind of creative interpretations of how to understand Isaiah 53. Just they don't even... Uh, that, that it might be about Jesus of Nazareth is not even on the radar screen. They just, they just dismiss it off of that. Um, so that's like another argument. With these people, you'd have to argue first that prophecy is possible, that the Bible is prophetic, and that it has prophecies and all that kind of stuff. Um, so that might be one weakness of, of 3.5. It's not a real strong weakness because uh, I think it, you can argue that prophecy is real and possible. Um, Another weakness might be you know you might want to say in fifty three four you know it's like he's it seems like a sickness that the figure is bearing you know sickness like he's a leper figure, and so does Jesus really get sick? Leper figure, you know what I mean? So, so that seems to be contrary evidence. Then, you know, so that would be a weakness. Okay, you might want to say that would be a weakness. <coughs> what did you just say? What was that? In Isaiah, it looks like uh, in fifty-three four, okay. part of the things that he's bearing is the infirmities, uh, and we have thought him uh, like a, a like a leper. So. I think how what the Christian response to that might be is this, is that the suffering servant, what he's really bearing is the sins of the people, and the sins are being portrayed as their sicknesses. Okay, And it says it's as if he were a leper, and that's why we're, devi- we're separating ourselves from him. So it's likening him to a leper. It's not saying he actually has leprosy. So that would be like a counter-argument. But anyways, that's, that's kind of how, how you address that issue. Um, I also, I find the second point strong. So actually, this is, you know, again, I'm biased, but I can't find a lot of weaknesses with the theory. I mean, I think it really does seem to fit Jesus very, very well. The second point here, the description of the servant agrees with the description of the Messiah as found in other passages of the Old Testament. And that's a strong consideration. So if you go to Isaiah uh, chapter 11, it talks about this shoot. Um, It describes the Messiah as like this shoot that's going to shoot forth you know, out of the stump of Jesse. And in Isaiah 53, it talks about this figure, the suffering servant is this shoot that sprouts forth out of the ground or roots out of dry ground. So, and then Isaiah 11, you can really argue that's the Messiah. So if that's the Messiah and it's a shoot, and this is also a shoot in 53, then it's the Messiah, an individual. So that would be, I think those are strong considerations to see that this is, a, this is an individual figure. The suffering servant is an individual figure. It, it does talk about two different stumps, doesn't it? In, in some part of the Bible, two different stumps. Stumps. You might be thinking of like root, root versus shoot. Because no, I, st- I thought this, I was reading. See, this is, I thought I was reading uh, about two different stumps, and one's going to be a smoldering. You're yeah, thinking of Isaiah smoldering. seven, yeah. I can't be sure where. It yeah, is you're thinking of Isaiah seven. Right now. I yeah. Maybe uh, I mean, a stump is a metaphor for um, some living thing that was cut down, you know, and it, what's left of it. So it's kind of a tragic image. It's a stump, you know, and so sometimes the nation is likened to a stump, but then also sometimes the Davidic lineage is likened to a stump because the Davidic kings were cut off and the nation was cut off and. 
So the, the stump is used in kind of a lot of different contexts, but then you have this shoot that comes out of the stump, and that's this hope, because the Davidic lineage is cut off, and then suddenly, boom, there's this messianic Davidic king that just pops out of nowhere, and here he is, ta-da, in the lineage. And so what you thought was dead is not dead. Suddenly there's life now, and a new hope is re- reborn. Well, it doesn't surprise you because it says, uh, <clears throat> when I come, I'm, I'll be coming in power. God's talking. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> that stuff doesn't surprise me that it's in there. Yeah, yeah. What What about the martyrs who, throughout the Bible, end up being persecuted and dying and all of that? Yeah. Could this just be in generality to related to that? Yeah. Is that a Is that a possible? I think I think that would be something like um, that would be close to theory three. You know. Um, because you know they're martyr. I mean, are there martyrs in the Old Testament? Kind of. In the Maccabees, there's martyrs. The Maccabee martyrs are about the closest thing you can get to someone who's suffering for righteousness, and his sufferings are of value for other people. You know, it's about the closest you can get. But I think you can read that this, in Maccabees that the sufferings of the of the martyrs are benefit. Uh, what? Or a benefit to, for themselves. Well, no, I think yeah, I think in the book of Second Maccabees, in particular, not first, but Second Maccabees, it seems to be putting forth a theory of, of a kind of suffering on behalf of other people, benefit for the other people, but not as strong as Isaiah fifty three. Isaiah fifty three is really saying like the punishment that was going to go on these people goes on this guy, you know. And I don't know if Second Maccabees is that strong, Barb. Yeah, I was wondering. You talk about people that don't believe in prophecy. Yeah. Is that like, are there Christians that don't believe in prophecy? Sure. Jews? Or is, I, mean, I mean, you've got a spectrum. It's more like it's from all religions, you know? Really? Because, you know, yeah, I mean, in a certain sense, you've got, you've got but it's more of like, a, it would be like almost a, an anti-supernaturalism, okay? Use a big word here. And, and it's like we believe in God's existence and we believe maybe they have like a vague concept. Yeah, God could intervene in the affairs of men and speak, but he just doesn't do that. So they understand the scriptures that to be more of just a plain kind of human production, and they have some kind of tentative relationship as an expression of God's will, but it's filtered very heavily through human experience of the relig- of religious uh, uh, realities and things like that. And, uh, so is he like Christian science? No, no, just more like, not necessarily, no, Christian science, I don't know about Christian science. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure about that, I can't answer that, but just... You have, you have Christians who are um, more like like kind of liberal Protestant Christians, uh, but yeah, I would say there's probably a number of Catholic scholars out there that kind of take a little bit of attack in this direction too. Yeah, those are the guys I would disagree with. Well, I know, I don't. Yeah, right, I know. Well, they, it's very subtle. They would get in. They, they would make really really fine distinctions. So they would say things like that the prophet himself didn't know that he was prophesying about Jesus, but, but God arranged it providentially. And, and so, like, his words, the author, the human author's intent meant one thing, okay? And the human author was kind of restricted in his purview and cannot predict the future, but the Holy Spirit, who was guiding him, could. And so there's kind of like a double meaning to it. It does have to do with Jesus, but also as far as if we're going to ask this very strict, limited question about the human author's intent... We, we can't bring t- into into um, uh, into consideration someone like Jesus who lived well after that 
Isaiah's lifetime. I mean, that's how they would address it. Where I would want to argue that uh, not only did God know of the future coming of the Messiah, but also the human prophet did as well, to an extent. The human prophet's knowledge is always going to be infinitely less, it's going to be more infinitely, uh, it's going to be infinitely more restricted than God's knowledge, but I would still want to believe that the prophet, and that's, I guess this is a theological question now. Right, but that's like the theologians sit around discussing. Yeah, it's theologians, it's philosophy, yeah, it's a lot, right? Uh, so that would probably what you find among some Catholic scholars, whereas then some liberal Protestant uh, scholars would be more extreme, and they would be like, yeah, there's no prophecy here, period. You know, but they still believe in God. You know, they don't deny God, and they they believe that the Bible is normative for the Christian life in some sense. But do the Jews believe in prophecy? Again, so you have a spectrum within Jews. You got some Jews who are a little more who are kind of liberal and they're anti supernatural, and you got real conservative Jews who are traditional, and they would, you know, say, yeah, definitely prophecy. Oh yeah, I mean, so what I always define Christianity and Judaism by how they have how they have been expressed in the long run historically. And so when you talk about historical Judaism, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. They believe in prophecy. And if you talk about Christianity historically, yes, absolutely. Christians believe in prophecy. So, and that's when it's, I think that's the most interesting debates. When you get a traditional Christian thinker and a traditional Jewish thinker and you see them debate, that's really, really cool, really interesting. Because if you get the skeptics in there, they have to, you can't even debate, you know, it's not like, you know, you you have to start you have to start back in like a, the more fundamental questions about God's intervention and history and yeah, I, all that kind of questions about inspiration and stuff like that. It's just a totally different argument that you'd have with that kind of person. Whereas if you have the the traditional Jewish thinker, the traditional Christian thinker, they both have a lot in common. They both have a supernatural worldview. They both believe that the Bible, that the Old Testament is an infallible word of God and that it's prophetic. And so now that's when it gets pretty cool. You know. I see. I see somebody <laughs> negative like that. They actually believe that these prophecies can come true, but they said they don't believe in it's God. How? What? You know? Like, yeah. And, and it's almost like a double negative. I. It makes a believer a non-believer. It seems like. You might have suffering going on, and there's this. And he, this some people example might like. Out of his mouth. I have seen some people argue for, for example, when you take about miracles, and they say, "Well, I don't deny. I don't deny that there are certain miracles that happen that Jesus works certain miracles, but I believe we can find a natural explanation for the miracle. We don't have to refer to a supernatural explanation. We can re- that they're they're a miracle. But now we're getting into Christian science at that point. You're saying that there's these kind of dimensions in the natural world that we're not aware of. And Jesus somehow was able to tap into these dimensions, and so he was able to harness, but it's purely natural energy. It, was not, it wasn't the activity of a transcendent God. So that would be a naturalistic explanation for what we would normally think of as supernatural. You know? And you might would do that with prophecy. So you might think that, you might argue some people have an ability to somehow, of their own natural ability, see the future. You know? I, I, don't, I, think, I think that people of their own natural ability can do more things than what we normally do. <laughs> when we live on a daily day to day basis, you know, but not something like prophesy the coming of the Messiah seven hundred years later. Wow. That takes only divine knowledge to can do that. Only divine knowledge can do that. But uh there might be things like, you know, there might be things like clairvoyance and certain thing limited things that, you know, our human beings can do but we just don't commonly do them. You know? But every once in a while you find some person whose brain is wired a little differently and they can 
they see something, you know, distance. I don't know how they do it, but there's something about it, you know. Uh, they can tell what's going on on the other side of that wall or whatever, you know, things like that. And it's a natural explanation. It's not a satanic power, and it's not a divine power, but it's just something, you know, natural explanation. But not this, though. Something like seeing something, seeing the Messiah that wasn't going to come about for another 700 years, that is, you know, divine knowledge. You can't find a natural explanation for that. I don't think you know. That would be another interesting argument. So, um, so what do you guys think in general? Any, uh, any overall kind of observations or thoughts or questions? I think we kind of can take it for granted because we hear it so often. The Isaiah 53, we hear about the suffering servant so often. It, it, the novelty of it kind of wears off on you, maybe. But I know, you know, if you, you continue to study and consider it and think about it, or, you, or sometimes if you're lucky, it strikes you for the first time. You're like, oh my gosh, this is an amazing prophecy of Jesus. You know, and many many Jews. I, I mean, I've read stories of Jewish people who were, you know, they read this and they get. They get freaked out. They're like, you know, they're like, like I remember hearing a Jewish a Jewish woman say something like, "What, what, like, why are you giving me a Christian Bible?" You know, like she thought it was like a passage from the New Testament or something like that. Like, get out of my face, you missionary! You're trying to convert me with your Christianity. It's like, no, no, no. This is your scripture, honey. (laughs) You know, and and so sometimes it will really. But then, but the, the the Jewish Apologists have a very kind of aggressive, well-developed explanation how this can't pertain to Jesus, and it's usually theory one. They usually try to argue for theory one. The servant has to do with the Israelite nation. As far as you know, has anybody ever argued that God is so far above us and his ways and his knowledge that multidimensionally maybe each of these theories has some validity? Uh, yeah, you could probably find a way. Yeah, oh yeah, certainly. Some people have taken that kind of approach. That yeah, there are multiple fulfillments. Definitely, you know that you could say that the human author meant had one meaning, but then God had all five of those meanings. Actually, yeah, some people could argue that. I take it the reason why I wouldn't want to go that route is because I think the human intention and God's intention are there's more of a unity between them. Then, if you if you really strongly bifurcate the human intention, the divine intention, you can do a lot of different stuff. You know. Yeah, well, it'd be kind of equivalent to saying that there's something in everything in the Bible for every age. I mean, you hear that argument occasionally. That yeah. I just wondered if that would apply to yeah. looking at it that way. Yeah. No, but there's uh, there's some truth to that. There's there's yeah, it's just a lot of flexible. It's very flexible, very open. Uh, God's God's word is extremely multidimensional. There's no doubt about it. Okay, what I thought might be interesting to do now is uh, go to some earlier chapters in Isaiah. And um, I kind of got these things lined up. So if you go to Isaiah chapter 2,
This is a prophecy I think we've already read. And again, within the Christian tradition, it, it pertains to the church of Jesus Christ. I think it, that is the best interpretation of it. It's a strong, it's a good interpretation. So in Isaiah chapter 2, Isaiah, he sees this future concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It says, It shall come to pass in the latter days, and I, we've gone over this before, but anytime you see the word latter days, that means it's kind of uh, ultimate fulfillment of history. Uh, Sure, I think we're living in, in this kind of ultimate fulfillment of history, but they don't mean, when they say latter days, they don't mean like, you know, a while in the distance, in the future. What they mean, it's really the, the fulfillment of all history. All right, it's a final point. It's really the end, okay? So, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be raised above the hills. And all the nations shall flow to it, and many peoples shall come and shall say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. And so one, you know, one argument I remember hearing a Jewish scholar say, you know, this is not, this can't be fulfilled in Christianity. Christians are, they fight each other all the time. It's like, whoa, you're right, actually. It's pretty humbling. It's true. Um, but uh, the point is that it's, uh, you know, ideally by the power and the spirit of God within the church and, of course, Christ himself, uh, you find that peace. That peace is realized. And it, it has begun already in this time. Uh, it does, it's not going to come to ultimate fruition until the end of the end of the end, but it's begun already in the church uh, and in Christ. Uh, because in the church you do have something kind of amazing, apart from the fact that we like to argue with each other. You know, uh, Catholics are you know always into uh, one parish versus another parish or one faction within a parish. Within, you know, but all all of that aside, honestly, it, it is a remarkable sign of unity. The Catholic Church is a remarkable sign of unity. There's no other institution that gathers under one creed so many languages and ethnicities and all types of socioeconomic stratas. You got rich, you got poor, you got important people, not important people, you know, scholars, unlearned, simple people, and from all languages, all walks of life, all over the whole world. And that's a remarkable thing that is not verified in any other institution. So it's the beginning. Obviously, we still were human. We're, we, we squabble and we bicker and there's arguments and, of course, sometimes even wars take place amongst Christian nations, unfortunately. But, uh, you know, that hope for unity that we see already realized is going to come to full flower eventually and, and there will be peace in the world. So I think the, the, the Jewish um, person who argues against this as having to do with Christianity is not sensitive to the fact that within Christianity we kind of have a two-stage understanding of prophetic fulfillment is that it, prophecy is summed up in the person of Jesus and in the church, but it's still like the church is the, the kingdom of God, but in seed form. You know, it still has to kind of grow. There's still an element where there's a, it's fulfilled, but it's not, not totally fulfilled. And you'll hear scholars use this phrase, already, but not yet. So the, the prophecies are already fulfilled, but not yet, at the same time. It's kind of a paradox. So... But my point, though, I want to draw your attention to is in the second verse 
where it says that the mountain of a house, okay, so you got this word house, bite, all right? It shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and shall be lifted up, nasa. So the house will be lifted up, okay, nasa. Now we go to, um, in verse 12, if we go on, <clears throat> actually we'll just start, let's, let's start reading in uh, verse 5 here. So, O house of Jacob, come let us walk in the light of the Lord. For thou hast rejected thy people, the house of Jacob, because they are full of diviners from the east and of soothsayers like the Philistines, and they strike hands with foreigners. Their land is filled with silver and gold, and there is no end to their treasures. Their land is filled with horses, and there is no end to their chariots. So look what the nation of Israel is doing is they're depending upon foreign aid and not upon the strength of God. They're depending upon money, gold and silver, and not upon God. They're depending upon horses, which is a symbol for the strength of war. Okay, so those who have a whole, they have a lot of horses. You can put together a big army, and you got. So they're depending upon their their arms, their natural arms, and not upon God. And these sources of strength are also sources of pride. Uh, and then idolatry is connected to it in verse eight. Their land is filled with idols. Um, and ironically, in verse 9, so man is humbled and men are brought low. Very interesting. Forgive them not. So in this pride, you know, the prideful person is you got this thing, you know, you, know, you got the high note, you know, like pride actually does do that to people too. Isn't that funny? You know, it really actually does. There's subtle, subtle muscles in the face. I mean, you're really, you know, the virtues and the vices actually do re- very subtle, you know, reflect in people's faces. And when someone's kind of arrogant, if they really are arrogant, sometimes they do walk. <laughs> so I wouldn't say subtle. I'm well subtle. <laughs> you know, it, it can really happen. It really can happen. I mean, you got to. Wa- I watch myself all the time here. <laughs> so, uh, um, point is that you know this whole idea of pride is the loftiness, right? And uh, but ironically, they're. They're worshiping. Their pride is leading them to worship idols, and then they bow down to the idol, and that's humbling themselves in a in a negative fashion. Because you can be humbled in a positive fashion, humbled in a negative fashion. It's humbled meaning humiliated. So inadvertently, in their pride, they're actually humiliate. They're humiliating themselves. Um, and so then in verse ten, enter into the rock and hide in the dust from before the terror of the Lord and from the glory of His Majesty. So now this is the end day judgment. So God is going to bring judgment, like it's the end of the world kind of judgment, apocalyptic judgment upon uh, idolatry. Uh, Enter into the rock, hide in the dust from before the terror of the Lord and from the glory of his majesty. The haughty looks of man shall be brought low and the pride of man shall be humbled and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. Um, For the Lord of hosts has a day and then this, this day is the day of judgment, okay? The Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up and high, against the cedars of Lebanon, the cedar being a metaphor for what's high and lofty. So in verse 12, if you note, you uh, says against all that is proud and high, he uses this word room, against all that is lifted up, nasa, okay? And that's, if you go earlier, the house of the Lord is the one that's going to be lifted up. So there's this inversion taking place. So 
That which was high according to fleshly pride of man is going to be brought low, and God instead is going to be the only thing that's going to be high. God is going to be exalted, and not the pride of man. So if you keep going in verse, uh, read on 13, against all the cedars of Lebanon, lofty and lifted up, and against all the oaks of Bashan, against all the high mountains, and against all the lofty hills. Uh, again, high is room, high mountains, and against all the hills, lifted up, Nasa. Okay? Now let's, you know, you keep going, and basically chapter 2, 3, 4, 5 is talking about the, the, Eschaton, I'm going to use that fancy word again, meaning that ultimate final day, that final fulfillment when God's judgment comes upon the world and finally justice is done and sin is done away with and idolatry is done away with and God is glorified and God's glory is now the predominant thing in the world. So that's what those chapters deal with. And let's go on in 5. Let's go to 526. So part of God's eschatological judgment, that final definitive judgment on the world, is he will raise a signal for the nation afar off and whistle for it from the ends of the earth. And lo, swiftly, speedily it comes. Wait a second. 526, and you lift up an ensign for the nations from far. Huh. My Revised Standard Version has a little bit of a different translation. I'm going to go with the, one, the translation that I got on this uh, page here. So in 526, says, he will lift up an ensign to the nations from far. So lift up is Nassah. So God is being lifted up, and that which was human, that was lifted up, is going to be brought low. But God is going to be lifted up. The house of the Lord is going to be lifted up, Nassah. And then also you've got this ensign, this sign like a, band, a, uh, like a flag or a standard uh, you know, that you would carry. Say you were leading an army to battle, you'd have a, a battle standard an ensign, okay? And ensign's a part of a military position. Isn't it a rank in the military? And it, literally, it means the guy that carries the, the bat, you know, the standard, okay? And what happens with the standard, too? If anybody knows, about, for example, how the Romans fought, when, the, when they would be in battle with another group and they, all their men were starting to, like, get scattered, the ensign's job was to lift up the standard so that all the men could see that and then they would regroup so they their strength can be reconcentrated and focused so that they can continue to fight. So the person who lifts up the ensign is going to basically be turning the battle in a, in a positive direction. Um, he will lift up an ensign for the nations from far. Okay, now let's go to Isaiah chapter 6. We've read this before. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Okay, we could go on further, but just you get this is the famous vision that Isaiah has of the Lord. The Lord is on a throne, and he's high and lifted up. And it's Rum and Nasa. 
It's the exact same words that were used in the first five chapters to talk about the humbling of men and the exaltation of God, but also the lifting up of the standard and also the lifting up of the house of God. And then the Lord is lifted up. Okay. Now, the, I preached this a little on one sat, sun, uh, a Saturday morning mass, actually, here in St. Mary's, and I'll do it kind of again. This figure here is an anthropomorphic figure, meaning it's God, but it's in the human form. Very interesting. Remember, we talked about this a lot. You guys got to know where I'm going, right? So you got this God figure, but it's in a human form. And it says the train of his robe filled the temple. And then if you study that word, it means like the hammer, the edge of his robe. It was really big and it you know, fills up the temple. And then that, that same word that denotes the hem of the robe, if you go back into the Old Testament, it's used to denote the hem of the priest's robe. It's a priestly garment that this figure is wearing. But it's also a king. So it's a king, but it's a priest figure. Now, where else in Isaiah have we seen a priest figure? What do we begin the class with? The suffering servant. It's a priest figure because he sprinkles many nations. Okay? Now, um, what does it say in uh, Isaiah 52, 13? Behold, my servant shall prosper. He shall be high, room, and lifted up. Nasah. Okay? You get, you get this? Okay, so the ensign of the nations, the house of the Lord... The house of the Lord is the temple, but Christ's body is the temple, and it was lifted up high on the cross. And the Lord says, if I, am, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. So Christ's crucifixion is simultaneously his exaltation because it's through his death on the cross that he, brought, he realized God's plan of glory for the world. And God was actually, and, and total irony, because it looked like he was humiliated, but he was really glorified. So to the eyes of men, he was humiliated, but he was really, that was his glory. And then, but man happens the exact opposite. So that man is high and lifted up and lofty in his own strength, but then he falls into idolatry and he bows down to the idol and he's really humiliated. So there's this kind of inversion. And you've got this figure who's God, but he's man. He's a priest figure, but he's a king. And then you've got the suffering servant who, just like that figure, is they're both high and lifted up. And um, so... The other interesting thing is this guy Uzziah says in the year that Uzziah died, Uzziah was an Old Testament king who was very presumptuous because he went into the temple and he started functioning as a priest and started offering sacrifices. Okay, So he was a king, but he took over the job of the priests. The priests come in, this is in Chronicles, the priests come in and they say, Uzziah, we don't care if you're a king, you are usurping the, the functions of the of the priests. And Isaiah says, bro, I don't care. You know, and he, he stretches out his hand to like, said, get the hell out of here, basically, to the priests. And his hand turns leprous, and then suddenly his whole body turns leprous. And then he's leprous until the day of his death. And then it says in Isaiah, in the year that Isaiah died, I saw the, and you have a figure who's both a king and a priest. <clears throat> so you see the pride of this King Isaiah who thought he would be a king and a priest, which only the Messiah can be. Right, you get, you get, a, you get all. You're connecting it, okay? If you just connect all these things, it's pretty wild, you know. So, so the man, you know, the, in the in the year that Isaiah died, it's like the man has got to be moved out. Of the, the 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 fake king, in a certain sense, has got to be moved out of the way for the real king, the Messiah King, to be to be seen, you know. So, like, 
he was he was almost trying to pose as a messiah because he was being a he's a king but he was trying to be a priest as well but only the messiah can be a king priest and so in the year that the fake king priest died we saw the real king priest high and lifted up and then it's also in connected with Isaiah 53 and the suffering the vicarious suffering of the servant and um, so and then uh, you know this is how John um, oh okay let's go on in some of these things here so in Isaiah 11:10 Isaiah 11:10 is definitely dealing with the Messiah and it says on that day the root of Jesse so we got the whole root thing going on the root of Jesse shall stand as an ensign. So the Messiah is this ensign to the people, and the nation shall inquire of him, and his dwelling shall be glorious. So the ensign is one of those things that shall be lifted up, remember, at the end time. So, um, and then in, in uh, eleven twelve, he will lift up Nassah, an ensign for the nations. And so just like the soldiers gather together, like when they're in battle, right, and, the, and they're kind of getting scattered apart, and the ensign lifts up the ensign, and all the soldiers come and gather together. So God is going to do that with all the nations. So when the Messiah figure is lifted up and exalted, he's going to be a meeting point, a rallying point for all the nations. And uh, that's what happens with the coming of Jesus. So this is, I preached on this before, and I, I mean, I, I would preach on it again. It's remarkable. Jesus is the only figure that's been able to unite all these nations together in, in one community, in one one institution. It's a remarkable achievement. And uh, so just like the soldiers coming together, they're rallying around that standard, that banner, so all the nations come together into the church of Christ. And it's that church. It's the house of the Lord that's being exalted. And uh, Jesus says specifically, he says, when I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. So... And uh, sorry, say that again. The way, yeah. right? That's right. Absolutely. Yeah. So, because it's through His cross that God's plan was realized, God's salvific plan and will for the world was realized, and forgiveness was given to all people. So we all, like sheep, have been astray. We've all gone to our own ways, says in Isaiah 53. And the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. So we, because sin divides, divides us. You know, we're divided in ourselves because of sin. St. James says, why, do you, why are there, why are there uh, fights and wars amongst you? Is it not because it's your passions within you that are at war? Because we have war within us first, and then that just spills out into the world. And war then becomes a reality in our midst. So sin divides us. And if we, through the power of the cross, have the ability to be forgiven of our sins and to overcome the power of sin, the power of concupiscence, the power of our passions, then that which caused division is now taken away and the unity can be restored and healed and there can be a reunification of the human race, which was intended to be that way from the beginning. But why do so many people now think that they can make new laws that go against God's Wishes, yeah. commandments, no, it's bad. And, right. and there's so many people, even Catholics, I've read before that they think the majority is going to change God's mind or something. Right. That, that this yeah. is going to be acceptable. Yeah. Well, how long is it going to be before God steps in and says, "No, it's not"? Yeah. <laughs> Tomorrow will be fine with me. 
I'm praying it soon. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, yeah. God's God's will will be realized, um, but there'll be, and that would be why it would be interesting to read what the New Testament has to say about the end of the world, because the church will be persecuted at the end of the world, and the church will be pruned, and um, you know, if the end day persecution is anything like the other times of persecution, you get a number of things happening. You get large portions of the church that unfortunately fall away, because they're really not strongly grounded in Christ. Huge oh portions of the church really God. just fall away in past persecutions, but positively speaking, the the people who stay fast really are strengthened and grow. And persecution is actually a good thing for the church, and it's a path of holiness and sanctity. So there'll be great saints that will be result from persecution. But yeah, it will be the state little by little. Unfortunately, the states will kind of go, the human government will go not in, not in a good direction eventually. Okay, well, we got about 15 minutes left, and uh, you know, I, I just kind of wanted to, in the course of this year, I wanted to get you guys to appreciate the Old Testament and to not feel like it's this, you know, like I talked to my dad, and he's always like, I don't care about the Old Testament, just give me the New Testament. I don't understand anything in the Old Testament, and you know, it's just it's too complicated. I, we were reading, he's like in a Bible study in his parish, and you know, this, this poor deacon is trying to lead my dad through the, uh, Isaiah, and he's like, I don't understand anything in Isaiah. I don't, nothing makes sense to me. You know, so for him as, as the average, I've got my dad in mind for, you know, trying to teach this course. So if I, if I have gotten you to appreciate the New Testament, maybe before it was something a little strange to you, and you kind of appreciate it more now, then, then I feel like I've done my job. Well, here, so. I'll, I'll tell you, it's pretty encouraging when Jesus comes and he's standing amongst after his resurrection, and they understand the scriptures. And they finally understand the scriptures because he opens their minds. He's got to open their minds. Yeah. So you know, and exactly, Mark. When you know, when Christ rises from the dead, especially in Luke, this is portrayed numerous times, and it says he opens up their minds to understand the scriptures. He's interpreting Isaiah 53, and Psalm 22, and Daniel chapter 7, and all of these passages that you you need to. You know, he's doing a lot better job than I am. It's like the holier you are, the more your words themselves are like powerful. They're they have they're like vessels of the Holy Spirit, and your mind is open to see the text more clearly. And you can just see the text, speak to it, and you open people's minds. And I'm doing the best that I can. If I was holier, I'd be able to do a better job. And if I was Jesus Christ Himself, you know, think about that. Think about Him teaching us the Old Testament scriptures directly. It would be remarkable, you know, because this is. He is the Word of God incarnate, and he's teaching us the Word of God. I mean, you know, you're really going to be like, oh, man, did not our hearts burn within us when he talked to us along the way? So, Okay, so should we call it a night? I mean, is there any final comments or questions, Barb? Um, I was just wondering if you could comment on uh, the connection between the Old Testament... Somewhere in the Old Testament, and I don't know because I don't, I don't have memories, but somewhere about blood moons and how we are experiencing blood moons right now. In Joel, it says, The moon shall be turned to blood. Yeah. It's in the scriptures. Yeah. Oh. And then Is Peter quotes it. Is it coming true in our time, do you think, or is nobody really knows? I think, uh, you know, uh, Peter quotes it on the day of Pentecost. Um. The whole astrological signs, that kind of stuff, you know, the sun shall be darkened, the moon shall be turned into blood. That's exactly, that's what it is, I remember now. In Joel it says, the sun shall be darkened and the moon shall be turned into blood before the great and the terrible day of the Lord. Okay, columns of smoke. And so what he's describing is war 
war is taking place, and then these kind of um, you know astrological signs taking place, like sh- you know shifting and stuff in this in the heavens. Uh, I think that a lot of that is kind of it should be read largely metaphorically, like when the cosmos is sort of groaning in labor pains right before the end. Uh, but there probably, I would imagine, there will be some kind of astrological stuff, astronomical the things taking place. The sun will be darkened and the moon is going to bleed. No, and the, no, it's I, I think I not. It doesn't say will bleed, but it will say. It says that? the moon will be turned to blood. I think is what it is. You know, uh, and I think possibly. Um, not in Joel. I was thinking in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Well, in. Pe- Peter quotes Joel in, in Acts chapter 2. So, Barb, what your question is what? Do you think this? I would doubt it. Doubt so, like, if you see... if Messianic Jewish friends that just think that this is, like, this is big because we've had these two blood moons in the spring yeah, and two more... I, I, okay, I think, I think the Messianic Jews are, are influenced. They're, they're really actually, uh, unfor- fortunately and unfortunately, fortunately because they believe in Jesus. Yeah. That's awesome. You know, and so and they're Christians. They're baptized, so they're, they're Christians, and they believe in Jesus. So really, that's great. We have ton in common with them. We should regard them as our brothers and sisters. But they are influenced heavily by a kind of a Protestant fundamentalism, which it, it just they take the scriptures a little bit too ser- uh, too literally. Not seriously. We should always take the scriptures seriously, but they take it too literally. You know. So these same people will believe. Uh, ask them this question, but I think that they would say that when Jesus returns, he's going to institute a literal thousand-year reign, and the temple will be rebuilt, and animal sacrifices will be reinstituted. Ask them if they believe that. I think they will say yes. Okay? And it shows you that that's a real... They got real problems, honestly, with their interpretation. See, now that's where they're going in a very decidedly non-Christian direction. Well, yeah, because they can't, they can't comprehend the Eucharist. They, they can't comprehend... Sure, sure. But you, you have to understand, a large proportion of American Christians, believe, like I'm talking a large proportion of American Christians, literally believe that when Christ returns, he's going to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem and there's going to be blood sacrifices offered. <laughs> it's a total reversion. Like it's, that's a, so my point being is that a large proportion of American Christians are very non-Christian. They're very Jewish in their thinking. You know? So ask these Messianic Jews, I bet, you'd be, I bet you they'll say that they think that Sacrifice is going to be reinstituted. So the point is that they're a little too literalistic, you know. Like I, I want to take s- blood moons know, as fulfillment of prophecy. Very literalistic, but if you point out the part of the Bible that says, "Unless you eat my body and drink my blood," they're saying, "No, that's not what it means." Yeah, it's a metaphor. Yeah. Well, the Bible's not easy to interpret. It's pretty easy to make a mistake. You know, it's pretty easy to make a mistake if you're left on your own. That's why I don't know anything about the Bible unless I, I always draw from tradition and from scholars because it's just, it's too complicated. Well, they say, he always says, you're, you're not going to get away with stealing my thought and say you, it was your thought. Doesn't he have to say? And Jeremiah is talking about false prophets who prophesy. You're, you're just not going to. Woe to those prophets Mary, who steal my Mary words. not going to let that happen. Woe to those prophets who steal my words and say, thus says the Lord, when the Lord has not sent them.
Oh, okay. Mary, oh, marrying like marrying apparitions. Yeah. Uh, oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, no, I believe it. I believe Fatima's stuff. Yeah, that's interesting. That's an interesting thought. Actually, I haven't thought about that. There's probably some truth to that. Um, I would say this. All prophecy is summed up in Jesus Christ. Okay, And so after Jesus, there's no more prophet like an Old Testament prophet. They don't exist. It doesn't mean that the charism of prophecy itself is totally gone, though. But it's always going to be understood with and in and through Jesus Christ. And so you might have gifted individual Christians here and there who have the charism of prophecy, but it's not equivalent to Old Testament prophecy. Because the Old Testament prophet came with the word of God with the ability to like write scripture. And it was an authority, there was a, a level, there was an authority to his prophecy that was unquestionable and it was infallible. Whereas a prophet today is not infallible, and he's got something that is infallible to judge him, and that is the dogma of the church and the church's hierarchy. So now the hierarchy takes the place of that infallible standard. So that's a really important thing. So like charismatic movement, okay, good, but it's got to be judged. Anybody that thinks they're a charismatic prophet, it's got to be judged by the church's dogma and ultimately by the hierarchy. That's why something like the seers in Medjugorje, I mean, the Vatican doesn't have to intervene, you know, but if it seems like it's a problem, the Vatican has the right to intervene, and ultimately the decision they make will be, we can trust it, that it's, in, that it's infallibly true. So the point is there's an institutional structure, a hierarchical structure now, that has the promise of Christ's infallibility infused into it, and that's that infallible standard by which any kind of prophecy is judged. So I can say that for sure. Now, someone like Mary, I mean, Mary, so there isn't any more prophets like the Old Testament prophets. That would be something that would be true. And so maybe there's some truth to the fact that, you know, Mary who's glorified, she's not going to prophesy anything in error, you know. So maybe, yeah, there's something, you know. And Mary is a, is a, is a, can be like an embodiment of the church, and what we're saying is the church is infallible, and the church is that final infallible prophet in the world. And so Mary is a kind of a, kind of like a second version of that woman, you know, the woman we're dealing with right now. Yeah, I don't know. There's a, I think there's a lot to that. Father, what's the difference between prophecy and revelation? Uh, I think there could be a difference. Um, Revelation is basically uh, God speaking. Now, God can say something that's not necessarily about the future. So, revelation would be a broader category. Prophecy would be a type of revelation. You know, that that might be one way of distinguishing between the two. You know. All right, guys, what do you think? Thank you, Father. Call tonight. Okay, I want to say.